The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for uh, February 16th, 2021. My name is Justin Robert Young. We've got uh, a lot of stuff to get to you. And let me first and foremost just say um, my my thoughts are with everybody in Texas Uh, I know a lot of you guys are going through uh, some really, really hard stuff. And and it's one of those things that I think is sort of difficult to wrap your head around because it's so rare, you know, when when a massive hurricane comes through Florida, it's a thing that people are used to. It's, It's devastating and people lose homes and their lives, but you understand it. When a blizzard comes through the Great Plains states, Yes, some people might die because that is a treacherous situation, but you understand it when there's an earthquake in California. But what's happening in Texas, while, you know, de rigueur for some folks that are used to dealing with with sub-zero temperatures and, and massive snowfall, is a huge problem. In Texas, and and largely because of uh, what is happening with the power grid that has left many, many, many millions of residents in the Lone Star State without power and, quite frankly, without the experience of how to deal with it. So, before we get into both the serious and the sublime during this episode of Politics, 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 let me just say that uh, our thoughts are with everybody out there in Texas. So what are we going to talk about on the show? Uh, We're going to talk about COVID. (laughs) We're going to talk about COVID. Uh, uh, I think we're kind of overdue for a resetting of the numbers. Many of you remember that it was nearly a year ago that we started opening it up Uh, each and every one of our episodes of this program with the hyperbole-free coronavirus update. And that was just my goal to to give you guys a non-narrative-driven, divorced-from-politics update on what was a breaking story at that point, an unfolding story at that point, that has dominated our lives. It's probably the story of our lifetime. But we've, well, we'll, we'll get into it. I, I just want to give everybody a, a state of play on COVID, just the numbers. And we're going to do that because later in this episode, we are going to speak with uh, a, a, an author that I've actually admired uh, because his writing is great. 
for Politico, and he covers the state of Florida. So we're going to talk about Ron DeSantis and whether his particular brand of communication, his leadership, is something that will benefit him coming out of the worst of COVID, if indeed that is the stage we are at now. So we'll talk about COVID, we'll talk about DeSantis, and we'll talk about some late breaking news. And that is Donald J. Trump, fresh off his second impeachment trial acquittal, is now in full-scale open war against Mitch McConnell, one of the first Trumpian uh, uh, sort of declarative statements past the impeachment is uh, 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 the Donald dusting off his enemies list and uh, uh, he has set his sights on Cocaine Mitch. All that bird first. All right. Um, I want to talk about how we talk about the pandemic because this is not going to be a political segment. We have previous to this only talked about the pandemic in relation to its political consequences. I want to make a point in, in separating those things because there is a difference and I think a very important difference between the political world and the scientific world. A political world operates beyond the world of logic. It's influenced by trends and emotions and circumstances. But mostly, the political world revolves around outcomes. Who wins? Who loses? What they do after that, specifically in relation to if they will win or lose again. The world of science, on the other hand really should not concern itself with outcomes at all. In fact, it winds up being at its worst when it thinks about outcomes. Science, on the other hand, is not about the result, but the question. Incremental data that adds up to better questions, which leads to more data, which adds to even better questions. This is part of why I bristle when... Politicians say things like, we're going to follow the science, quote unquote. It's a great sentiment, but science isn't dogma. You don't really adhere to it. You contribute to it. You ask better questions, which is why it tends to be something that doesn't fit very neatly into the political world. That again, is all about the predictability of Results. So let's uh, uh, reset here together, shall we? As we arrive at the year anniversary of its onset of COVID-19, 
The United States is currently recovering from the most deadly wave of this disease to date. It began, this current wave, in roughly mid-October. On the 12th of that month, uh, we registered 46,000 cases. The United States peaked on January 8th when 308,000 cases were recorded in a single day. As of February 15th, we reported 52,000 cases. So you can get a sense just by where we started, where we were in the middle, where we are now, that there was a massive spike. Of course, with cases come death. Death has promptly followed these trends. And, and, and just for context, the most deadly day in the initial onset of this in winter and spring of 2020 was 2,751. That was a very deadly day in mid-April. I will caution that we almost certainly had more deaths during those previous months and it may very well likely have been over that number. We just didn't have the tools to test for it. So in comparison to that, and let's let's use 2,751 as the high water mark in, in coming out of winter in uh, 2020, we then have the next little boom of the virus. That was the summer surge. The most deadliest day there was 1,855 deaths in one day on July 30th. But that number, and remember how much was uh, discussed about uh, you know this, this summer surge and there were lockdowns. I'm not saying there shouldn't have been. I'm just saying to, to compare that number to what we just went through. Our winter surge, that 1,855 deaths on July 30th was not half of our deadliest day during our current wave, which was 4,502 Americans dead on January 12th. As of February 15th, 905 Americans died, and that was the first time since early December that our daily death number was only three digits long. One thing has not changed since our first wave nearly a year ago, and that is that the Northeast Corridor has taken the largest toll. The top five states with the highest death per million population are Number one, New Jersey with 2,533 dead per million. Number two, New York with 2,382. Number three, Massachusetts, 2,259. Number four, Rhode Island, 2,213. And number five, the only southern state on this list, Mississippi with 2,184. If you want to know how that compares to our national average, they're high. The United States averaging uh, uh, the death per 1 million population is 1,509. That puts us below hard-hit nations like the United Kingdom and Italy, 
but above Spain and nearly twice the, the death per million population of Germany. And so the question becomes, what happens now? Because a few things are very different now. Number one, we've gone through this once. So theoretically, we will have lessons that we can learn and apply not just to the virus, but the virus in this specific time of the year. And if we do believe that there is a seasonality to this virus, then that does matter. So not only do we have those lessons from the lockdowns and the infections, but, and I would say most importantly, the light at the end of this COVID tunnel was, has, and is vaccinations. The United States currently has three approved by the FDA, and the United States has done an admirable job of vaccinating its citizens comparative to the rest of the world. 12% of our 300 million plus population have received at least one shot. Now, that number is dwarfed by the world's leader, Israel, with 43% of their population getting one shot. We also lag behind the United Kingdom with 22% of their population getting one shot. Although, to be fair, both of them have substantially smaller populations to the United States. Still, those countries are tracking ahead of Spain, Italy, and Germany, who have only 3% of their population receiving one shot. While obviously questions remain about variants of the virus and, and mutations of the virus that have and certainly will continue to arise, all early evidence right now points to vaccines preventing serious illness and death even with these variants. So with that knowledge in hand, Let's take our science hat off and let's put on our, our, our politics bowler and let's get in to some of the leadership of it all. How has what we just went over affected the governors of some of the most influential states in the union? If we are to assume that the slowdown we're seeing now is indeed the beginning of the end of the worst, who will benefit and who will flag? Well, let's start with the state that I am broadcasting to you from right now. California's governor, Gavin Newsom, faces a recall because of his inconsistencies in his COVID strategy that have infuriated both sides of the aisle in the nation's most populous state. Now, the state's low raw death rate evaporated through this winter as Los Angeles became the national epicenter of the virus and California finally overtook New York as the nation's lead state in raw death toll. Although I, I will say that that the fact that it took that long for that to happen is really a credit to California or you know, a, a, a bad mark on Cuomo. We'll get to him in a second, though. Because to Newsom's credit, California does have a very impressive deaths per million number at 1,000 
197. That's 33rd amongst all 50 states. A reminder that New York, uh, per 1 million people, 2,382 have died. California is half that. So let's get into that New York state of mind. I'm going to take a very, very, very slight victory lap because I feel that my early criticism of uh, New York's Governor Cuomo has been validated. His death numbers are still among the highest in the nation a year on, and his decisions are certainly to blame for New Jersey and Connecticut's high death numbers as well. What's worse, his decision on admitting early COVID patients back into nursing homes was covered up to avoid revealing exactly how deadly it was. Death numbers were only recorded if a nursing home patient died of COVID in the nursing home itself. If they had to go to the hospital to try to save their lives, they were not counted. This is now a major scandal. And I don't think it's going to wear any better the further we go into this process. So, those are the two Democratic golden boys. What of the Republican governors? Well, Brian Camp of Georgia made headlines for opening up his state faster than even the federal recommendations from the Trump administration warned to. His state's death toll is almost identical to the national average at 1,523 per 1 million. Although Georgia has a higher cases per 1 million count than California. So technically another good sign for Gavin. Although a low death number for Brian Kemp, considering how aggressive he's been, is probably on the good side. Although good God knows uh, uh, where that even factors into Brian Kemp's calculus as he discusses a, a another rematch with Stacey Abrams for that governor's mansion as he now also has Donald Trump on his back. Let's move to Greg Abbott of Texas. Now, he walked more of a line. He was not quite the uh, uh, economy over COVID zealot that Kemp was. He did apply, I mean, at least for Texas, aggressive lockdowns in the second most populous state. And to his credit, their uh, national death average is 1,435. So that's good. You're below the average. That's good. But arguably, there has been no state more in the crosshairs of media mockery than Florida and its governor, Ron DeSantis. He presided over opening beaches before most states. Indoor dining as well. His state allowed fans in attendance for sporting events, including the Super Bowl a few weeks ago. And yet, not only is Florida below the national average in deaths per 1 million, they are 27th with 1,358. So how will this affect our political landscape going forward? 
Like I mentioned before, we will be joined later in the show by Politico's Mark Caputo to discuss DeSantis at length, including how much he can thrive in a post-Trump era, the Sunshine State's rightward tilt in 2020, and the controversy surrounding the state's numbers themselves. The Save America PAC, Political Action Committee, will be one of the uh, new arms for newly relieved of his duties, President Donald Trump. And in his first on-brand, shall I say, statement since he vacated the White House, he had a stinging rebuke for one cocaine Mitch McConnell. Yes, uh, these two heavyweights and uh, one-time allies during uh, Trump's term have now uh, uh, totally come to blows. This in uh, the email sent out by Trump, the Republican Party will never again be respected or strong with political quote-unquote leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell at its helm. McConnell's dedication to business as usual, status quo policies, together with his lack of political insight, wisdom, skill, and personality has rapidly driven him from majority leader to minority minority leader, and it will only get worse. The Democrats and Chuck Schumer play McConnell like a fiddle. They've never had it so good, and they want to keep it that way. He uh, goes on to call Mitch, uh, we'll, we'll read this verbatim here. Uh, Mitch is dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. Uh, the man even goes, uh, <laughs> he almost goes full Blankenship here. A, a reminder that Cocaine Mitch came from uh, a Don Blankenship, complicated how he got to talking about Mitch McConnell, but uh, got to... Uh, insinuations that Mitch McConnell is beholden to China because his wife, Elaine Chow, is Chinese. Trump takes that to task. McConnell has no credibility on China because of his family's substantial Chinese business holdings. He does nothing on the tremendous economy and military threat. This is uniquely interesting because Mitch's wife, who is the source of these substantial Chinese business holdings was in Donald Trump's cabinet. The letter goes on to say that Donald Trump will do his best to challenge Mitch McConnell's leadership. He is not opposed. And, and this is ostensibly what he is raising money for here with this email to run primary challengers against sitting Republican senators if they are not substantially MAGA. So a couple of things to kind of break down with this. Number one, I, I think we have a clear answer to the question. What is Donald Trump's focus now that he is out of the White House? And the first answer to that question is dust off that enemies list. So Mitch McConnell Brian Kemp, who's mentioned in this letter, uh, y'all are going to be the first. He will he will campaign very hard against Brian Kemp. 
the amazing uh, tag team of of Donald Trump and Stacey Abrams are going to be just crazy to 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 see unfold over the next few uh, months. But Mitch McConnell as well. Number two, we aren't quite at Twitter level S posting, but this was spicy. This letter, the verbiage in it, calling him a, a, a unsmiling political hack is like Tucker Carlson, a block and not 4chan. But if we want to get a sense of what we can expect from Trump, I feel like that's a fairly good lane to sort of expect it. The things that he's going to write will be someone's going to proofread him before he just hits retweet. What's also interesting about this is that it's a plan we've seen before. <laughs> if you might remember challenging Mitch McConnell's approved Senate uh, uh, cadre was tried in the run-up to 2018 by Steve Bannon. This was uh, a thing he was initially going to run from the White House, and then when he left the White House, he kept doing it. Steve Bannon wanted more America First senators. One of those America First senators, in fact, the only time that this really came into focus was in the thought-to-be very safe seat of Alabama, vacated by Jeff Sessions. The Mitch-approved candidate was Luther Strange. The Bannon insurgent was Roy Moore. Roy Moore beats Luther Strange in the Republican primary, goes on to lose against Doug Jones. Are we looking at a repeat of that going forward? Only. Time will tell. Of course, we all know that you can go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and get on our Patreon. We know that you can get the $3 Club, two bonus podcasts each and every week at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. However, been a while since we have shouted out some free ways that you can expand your politics, politics, politics experience. The first is our newsletter. Five days a week, uh, uh, Monday through Friday, uh, a digest of stories that I believe are worthwhile. Uh, some some shot shoot from the hip uh, hot takes. You can get that at Free Political Newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Uh, I'm, I, you know, we, we've changed up the, the format a little bit, so it's, it's been a while since you had checked it out. We're now on Substack, so if you would like to kick in some cash, you can do that if you'd like. But otherwise, it is the Free Political Newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Uh, and by the way, best write-in community in the business, in my opinion. And I've been reading a lot of political newsletters. There's really, really great political newsletters out there. Uh, but nobody, nobody's got 
Nobody's got what we got in terms of the fun of, of our of our our feedback. I love it so much. The second way that you can expand your PX3 lifestyle for free at no cost to you is our Discord. Bit.ly slash jury discord. J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. It is a 24-7 chat room uh, where all the latest uh, news comes in. It is uh, uh, just a fantastic resource. Fantastic resource. So head over there and get that. And one final thing. I'm on Clubhouse. I'm on Clubhouse. So if you have a Clubhouse invitation, I'm going to be screwing around with Clubhouse. Justin R. Young on Clubhouse. No idea what I'm going to do. As if there needed to be more access to my political opinions. Justin R. Young on Clubhouse. Our guest today is a national political reporter for Politico.com, but in my opinion, has expertly, specifically through the election, covered the greatest state in the union, my home of Florida. His name is Mark Caputo. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Now, uh, uh, your most recent article here in in Politico, I thought was fascinating because it's something that I've I've sort of seen slowly develop, and that is Ron DeSantis, somebody that I think has has nationally been a if if you know him, I think the the, the reputation is sort of as something orbiting the Trump universe, and while that hasn't necessarily changed, certainly the hierarchy of governor scandals has uh, uh, specifically in California and New York with Florida remaining relatively unscathed. So at least as any major state in COVID can. So let's start here. What based on your reporting is, are, are the facts on the ground in terms of Ron DeSantis's handling of COVID? Yeah, it's like everything with COVID and a pandemic, like it kind of depends on who you ask. Um, So I'll I'll kind of rephrase the question. What surprised me about this story or how did I wind up doing the story, which is basically COVID wars propel Ron DeSantis into GOP top tier nationally? And that is I was reporting out a different story concerning um, the very early baby steps that maybe candidates for president in the GOP are taking. And whether I was on the phone with people in Florida, Republicans in Florida, or Republicans in Texas, or California, or New York, or South Carolina, or New Hampshire, or Iowa, the name Ron DeSantis kept getting brought up sometimes proactively by people. Oh, and also in Washington. Wow. Josh Holmes, who's an advisor so Mitch McConnell, I think, said it pretty succinctly, like Ron DeSantis is having a moment with conservatives nationwide. Now, the question is, is why? And I, I think it's ultimately rooted in what's kind of commonly called like negative partisanship or, or to, to, to use kind of a bastardized Machiavellian interpretation of it. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. For decades, a conservative media, conservatives, Republicans have demonized 
the news media. And very often that's a shorthand term for the New York Times and for TV, CNN, MSNBC. Yeah. Broadcast news and, and then now now the, 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 the 24-hour cable network, CNN and MSNBC. Right. All of that stuff's based out of New York and or almost all of it. And the the dialogue early on in the pandemic was like, what an idiot Ron DeSantis is. Look at these Florida morons on the beach. How come they're not in indoors? Uh, why isn't Ron DeSantis doing more? Wow, look at Go- Governor Cuomo. Look how great he's doing. Yeah. And there was, if you lived here, which I do in Florida, there was just this kind of widespread belief like, oh my God, bodies are going to be stacked in Florida. People are going to die everywhere. And people have died. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the expectations that were set uh, by progressives, by resistance Twitter, by Democrats, and by a lot of the coverage in the New York-based national news media were very low. Basically, Florida was going to be a disaster. And if you look at the rates of deaths in Florida, nothing really to brag about. But yeah. at the same yeah. time, despite kind of being number one in target of criticism for coronavirus response, Florida's 27th in death rate uh, in the nation, which if you have been paying attention and when I tell people like, hey, guess what Florida's death rate is? They're like, what, third, fourth? No, it's 27th. And so Republicans who distrust the news media already saw the way DeSantis was treated. Then they look at Florida. They see the unemployment rate is relatively low or lower than the national average, better lower than the uh, than the major blue states. They see that the COVID deaths are lower than the like five major blue states or four of the five. California is a little better, but it's going to lock down. It's unemployment rate is worse. Uh, and they like his attitude. Ron DeSantis loves to swipe back at the news media and, you know, he, he doesn't like taking shit off of anybody. Uh, in fact, he likes giving it back pretty hard when he can. And they love that. And so you combine those factors together and Ron DeSantis is having a moment. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to I, I want to get more into that. I don't know if this track record that has come out of Florida and we are going to get into some of the controversy about it in a second, but uh, that it hits the same if he is not also bringing the sizzle with the steak because he plays that Fox News, that Fox and Friends game about as well or as aggressively, I should say, as any governor in the country. How much of this is because he wants to be out there in the spotlight for the conservative audience specifically uh, uh, touting these wins? I think, you know, the the factor in kind of modern political life is everyone likes to kind of retreat to their safe spaces and their corners, right? Yeah. And DeSantis built his political brand, his reputation, his ability to become governor on his appearances on Fox. He's just very comfortable there. They know that he's not going to be asked uh, tough questions. Uh, and he knows that he's uh, he's going to be able to hold forth. But there's also just the fact that, like, you know, Ron DeSantis is who he is. I mean, he's a wonky guy. He loves data and he loves information. He's headstrong. He's peevish and he's combative. And as a result, the people, the news media who are asking about these questions that are sometimes uncomfortable, well, that triggers his combative sense. And that's just kind of like the Reese's peanut butter cup of peanut butter and chocolate that kind of (laughs) mixed together perfectly for the palate of conservatives. Um, but I think you hit on something I didn't have in my story, which which is the 
that Ron DeSantis is very much a creature of the Fox News ecosystem and reactionary anti-Obama era politicians. That is, he's an anti-Obama reactionary politician. He was first elected uh, to Congress when uh, Obama was president, and he, he had self-published a book called Dreams of Founding Fathers, which was meant to kind of- A parody, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of a refutation, so to speak, or whatever, of Obama's book, uh, Dreams of My Father, right? And so that just kind of gives you an idea of where he's coming from. And he's, he's played things, I mean, really well. The other interesting thing, which I just flicked at in the story, unlike Rick Scott, now Senator Rick Scott, former Governor Rick Scott, who had an entire entourage of advisors and pollsters and a real inner circle, Ron DeSantis doesn't have that. He's got yeah. his wife, first lady. He has Shane Strom, his now outgoing chief of staff. He doesn't have a political consultant on staff. He doesn't have a pollster, any of that stuff. He, in the words of a Florida pollster, probably top Florida's top Republican pollster, Ryan Tyson, is that he flies by instinct, not by instrument. He's kind of a natural at this. You know, the question is going to be, let's say you get into 2022. Let's say he survives 2022. You know, he's an incumbent, usually our, our favorite to, to win re-election. What happens in 2024 if he has to hit the campaign trail and he's not really known for his interpersonal skills? How's that going to play in Iowa? Is that going to play in New Hampshire? Maybe to a degree in South Carolina. I don't know. But right now, Republicans are liking what they're seeing. So let's let's get into the Florida of it all, because the one thing that has struck me about DeSantis throughout this is that as far no, as I'm sorry to cut you off, the Florida of it all is really a great phrase. I yeah, I mean, number one, it's my fascination. I am I am a Floridian in exile uh, uh, from from South Florida, Broward County. So I, I, I love watching this. But the one thing that has struck me about uh, DeSantis is that compared to the governors that he that that preceded him, including Rick Scott, including Charlie Crist, including pre exclamation point Jeb, uh, they're they've kind of been sort of bloodless bureaucrats. Like there, there has not been a tremendous amount of of flamboyance, at least in the way that DeSantis seems to have had. Uh, uh, and and I wonder whether or not the the moment that Florida is having politically, where it seems to at least in 2020 tilted more to be a, a a less purple state, but more just a battleground that Republicans can kind of count on a little bit more. Uh, how much of this is about the kind of moment that Florida is in? Is is he the man meeting it, or is is he just a product of it? You know, it's probably both. Uh, but indeed. You know, as I said, like he's authentic, like this is who he is. And uh, I don't think he necessarily really likes talking to reporters, but if he has to talk reporters, he, he probably prefers arguing with them. Uh, and so in that regard, yeah, he's kind of meeting the moment of where the Republican Party is. Uh, what's the shelf life of Trumpism? I don't know. Right? Yes. 2021, uh, you know, there's kind of two year-ish, two years-ish to go. Uh, to the governor's race. I mean, Nikki Freed, who's a Democrat, who's the only statewide elected Democrat in Florida, the only woman elected statewide in Florida, who's the agriculture commissioner. Uh, she coincidentally today released a, a, a web video, a Twitter video, where she really kind of played up the, the empathy issue. She didn't attack DeSantis on, uh, on the death rate, in part, you know, we refer to the prior com prior previous comments as to where Florida is. But I think she wants to make this kind of more of a personality contest. And, you know, if I'm reading between the lines, I think Democrats see 
DeSantis is kind of prickly personality as as perhaps his biggest weakness and, and her kind of s- smoothness and, and panache as as the solution. No, but uh, I, I think that's something to watch. Uh, let, let, let's get to the Trump stuff, because DeSantis first flashed onto my radar when he was running for governor with among the most sycophantic political ads I have ever seen in my entire life, where he was reading a Trump children's book to his infant son and showing him how to build a wall with blocks. If he were a newlywed and not a married man, he might have offered prima nocta to Trump, uh, uh, you know, during this introduction to statewide office. Uh, uh where is Trumpism in 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 Florida? And has he kind of successfully sort of made his own brand that can sort of sail with uh, with without the lead ship? Because it seems like, at least from my perspective, he has. He's got a record. He's he's got his own track record of decisions. No one's going to say that he didn't make the calls he made during a crisis situation. It, it feels like if anybody is going to separate themselves from Trump without necessarily repudiating him, it is somebody like DeSantis. Yeah, the line I've heard from some Republicans is competent Trumpism. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I think you hit the nail on the head. And in fact, that ad that you're referencing, that sycophantic ad, that was that was a triumph of kind of meta-cynicism, right? <laughs> is his team knew that he was being mocked and derided by the left and by the yeah. media as being just a one Trump trick pony, right? One trick Trump pony. And so they're like, okay, well, I get, they use that old phrase. I don't know if it was Eisenhower that if you've got a problem, hang a lantern on it. Yeah. So it was this kind of self mocking thing. And that ad was cal- perfectly calibrated, not only for the Republican electorate, not only for the news media to cover it, like, Oh my God, look at this. Right. It was also, hit the sweet spot for getting liberals to just hate his guts. Yeah. And back to that negative partisanship thing, you know, Republicans look at the people that they hate and who they hate and they like that person. And you know, Democrats do the same thing. Don't get me wrong. But in the context of DeSantis, like that's kind of really where his, uh, his brand is, has started to have been built. When he first took office in 2019, he was more bipartisan. And um, COVID came along. Now, this is just my working theory. I haven't established a timeline, gone through the quotes, and I don't live in Tallahassee anymore. I was covering the Biden campaign, uh, so I, I wasn't able to like, kind of cover him day in and day out. But I think a lot of the, the news coverage, especially the national TV coverage, really sort of radicalized him and kind of uh, brought him more firmly into the, the Trump camp. And he's also essentially a an adherent of the old idea of you dance with them that brung you. Yeah. Donald yeah. Trump brought him to the dance. And uh, in, in great part, I think, because of the investments that Trump made and just because of who Trump is and the dynamics of the race and who Biden is and the dynamics of Florida. Uh, you know, Trump won Florida by a bigger margin in 2020 than Obama did in Obama's landslide, so to speak, in 2008. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, Trump at least as of November was very popular here. Now, what happened with the insurrection? How do people view him? You know, let's give it some time. But at the very least, this is still Donald Trump's party. But the fascinating thing, as I referenced in the story, is that Ron DeSantis in polls of Florida Republicans now has a better net favorability rating and actually top line favorability rating than Donald Trump does 
in the state that Donald Trump by, won by such a big margin. Don't get me wrong. In Florida, a big margin is more than three points. And it was sure. Like, yeah. Points that, that Trump won. Uh, let, let, let's talk about re-election because uh, DeSantis is up in 2022, as is uh, Marco Rubio, uh, and and you have not heard a lot of, uh, of you know talk about big challenges for either. These should be big, meaty targets for uh, a, a Democrats, but I think partly because of the results of 2020 and and the state seemingly to tilt just a little bit more rightward that at least from my perspective hasn't been the case uh why do you think that is well democrats you're, you're hearing more talk about democrats running against desantis than rubio yeah and that's because of those factors i talked about kind of uh desantis's personality while he's deeply beloved by the base he's he's rather reviled um by the left so you know, he he appears at least to Democrats as being more beatable in that regard. Uh, Rubio is on paper like an incredibly difficult candidate to beat in a general election uh, because he's Cuban-American, because he's uh, relatively popular for Republican in Miami-Dade County. Miami-Dade is the most populous county in Florida. It's the most Hispanic-heavy county in Florida. It's a county that Democrats need to roll up big margins in. Yes. Uh, in addition to, you know, Broward County, where you're from, Palm Beach, and a few others, in order to offset losses elsewhere. And Rubio kind of, because Miami's his home base, like takes away a lot of that home field advantage, so to speak, from Democrats. And so they therefore perceive him as being tougher to deal with. And it's kind of a tale of two candidates, DeSantis and Rubio, in that, you know, there's talking about Ivanka maybe running against Rubio. That's crazy. That's, I, I, I'm i glad you brought that up. I'm like, what do you, like, this is what we do. I mean, <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I, I don't doubt that uh, 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 Ivanka might be yet another in a gigantic line of people that come and spend way too much money in South Florida and realize that there was just a lot of people waiting to take it from them. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I, 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 I am blown away by the idea that Ivanka would would try to be a retail politician that is that is go- going into you know the the Dania high lie and shaking hands. Well, you know, uh, Florida's more of a TV state anyway, right? It's not as much a retail politics state. Uh, a, a Republican primary is a closed primary. Uh, if it remained Trump's party, if Donald Trump decide, if Ivanka Trump decided to run, these are you know the that's a big if, by the way. Yeah. And if her dad decided to back her full throatedly, well, you know, it might not be so crazy. Now, that said, let's just be clear. Uh, let me be clear. Uh, we haven't gotten any smoke signals that yeah. indicate she's very interested in it. Or, or, or wait a minute. As far, as far as if we're talking about Rubio, we should dispel with this fiction. But but uh, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, you just you, you, <laughs> um, obscure reference to the New Hampshire. Right? That's it. Yeah. Um, the um, but it. You know, Ivanka's people are, are, you know, basically saying that she sent this smoke signals that she's not that interested. But people who've worked for um, for Trump, people who know her, they're like, look, it's Trump. It's They're the Trumps and the Trumps are going to do what they want to do. So who knows? But meanwhile, Roger Stone, for instance, um, longtime Trump advisor. He lives in Florida. Uh, he's been rather critical of Rubio. He's been saying that Rubio is going to get a, a MAGA challenger from the right. Yeah. Whether that's a, a serious threat or not, who knows? But the reason I said it's kind of a tale of two candidates is you hear grumblings on the right about challenging Rubio. You don't hear that about DeSantis. Yeah. Right? Nobody's going to come from the right and 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 get him. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's kind of like to kind of 
borrow a Kelly Lefflerism from Georgia, that'd be like kind of getting to the right of Attila the Hun. He's <laughs> kind of metaphorically right. Yeah, or 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 whatever uh, a conqueror she meant uh, during that during that ad. Uh, Genghis Khan, I'm not sure. Whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, so one more thing I want to get into uh, uh, with the landscape in Florida. Something that I think, if I remember correctly, your reporting did uh, a great job of presaging uh, in terms of the actual election results. Are real Democratic alarm bells that were going off months before. Uh, uh, the the actual election day with problems in Miami-Dade County, with Hispanic turnout in, in Miami-Dade County. Like you mentioned, and we've said here on this show a million times, you gotta roll, you have to blow out the Republicans in those counties if you want to play statewide. That really didn't happen. Is there a sense that this is a lasting change or was Biden just a bad candidate? I don't know. Um, one of the interesting things about Trump is I looked at the hundred Hispanic majority counties in the United States. Trump improved his margins in 78 of them. Yeah. In the United States, not just in Florida, right? 78 of them. And this was after, this is after more than four years of, of Donald Trump being called a racist and sometimes credibly. So uh, having draconian immigration policies, a family separation, kids in cages, all of that stuff. Yep. And yet, yeah. along the border of Texas, he, he he improved his margins with Latino voters. What's going on? And the, the story I wrote at the time got into the idea that he has, even though he's a guy who, who brags about having a gold toilet, he's got a blue-collar appeal. Yeah, And the Republican yeah. Party has a blue-collar appeal. One of the things I didn't get into there too much, the issue of patriotism. A lot of Hispanic voters, whether it be they you know, Mexican, Cuban-American, Venezuelan-American, whatever – there's there's like a strong uh, attraction to patriotism. I certainly saw it here in Miami. Like I live just off of Southwest 8th Street off of 49th Ave. There was like one weekend I heard this loud honking. I went there. There, there was a chain of cars heading eastbound, bumper to bumper, all the way to the water. Yeah. Uh, of, yeah. of, you know, Cuban-Americans waving not just Cuban flags, but American flag. Whereas on the left, you have an issue of like there there's a, a faction of the Democratic Party that is embracing democratic socialists, socialism, so to speak. And, you know, frequently you can test this out on Twitter. If you talk about this is the greatest country in the world, like just say that, like very often you'll get some very progressive people who'll just be like, no, it's not. Yeah. Um, for a lot of immigrants who become U.S. citizens, like they became U.S. citizens because they really loved it. And that sort of pro-patriotism on the right, and let's just say that non-pro-patriotism among some quarters of the left are, are, are also factors at play. But I mean, I don't know how much of a lasting effect this is, but I do know that in midterm elections, Democrats have traditionally struggled to turn out their base. And there's just a lot of ingredients right now that are coming together that, that is, are gonna make this midterm very challenging. Now that having been said, uh, midterms are very often sort of referendums on the incumbent in the White House. And I think if you look at the polling, and you look at the way Joe Biden has gone about, you know, being president, albeit it feels like a lifetime. It hasn't even been a month yet. I mean, it, it, it also kind of feels like he's been a supporting character uh, uh, up, right. up through like like if if there were credits, it would be and Joe Biden at, at the very end, uh, uh, you know, as, as we are now just getting into a world in which he's the center of the political universe past this second impeachment. Right. And I I. 
what he did in the presidential election, he's he's showing in the White House, which is don't throw gasoline on fire. Yeah. Uh, Be competent. Be normal. Yeah. Don't be crazy. And if the economy winds up being okay, and coronavirus is by and large vanquished and schools are reopened, like there's a possibility that Biden will not meet the same fate that other first term presidents, except for Bush, right, after 9-11, experience in their first midterm. So a lot of this election is going to ride on, on, on Joe Biden. Now, as you had mentioned before, like, was Joe Biden a terrible candidate for Florida? Sort of was. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, you know, Trump needed to win Florida. It was not only for just electoral college rights. It was like for bragging rights. And he just spent an ungodly amount of money and time and attention here. Um, And Joe Biden didn't. So how Biden will play here in his midterm and he's not actually on the ballot and you have these other forces in play, I don't know. But I don't want to say that Republicans are definitely going to win the state because, you know, there's we have to keep in mind that elections are fluid. Politics are fluid. Joe Biden has demonstrated a record of being able to win by being not flashy, but being normal. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there might be a make America normal again streak that still lasts through 2022 that uh, Democrats could possibly post off of in Florida. I don't know if that's the case, but, you know, it's certainly a factor that we need to pay attention. One last thing that I'll, I'll get you out of here on. Uh, this is very inside Florida, but I know anybody who is just tuning into a DeSantis conversation is going to want to have this uh, addressed, uh, certainly from the liberal side, and that is Rebecca Jones, somebody that was a, uh, a, a former employee of the state of Florida that said that uh, Florida was cooking its books when it came to COVID numbers. She then set up an independent dashboard. She has been a very controversial figure. She went to jail because uh, uh, the state of Florida said that she had stolen computers on her, which I think was was reasonably looked at as maybe a a, a overstepping. But uh, when we say Florida has good numbers and you have a person that has gained a lot of notoriety by saying, no, they don't, they're lying to you. Uh, how much is this a liability for DeSantis? Well, Rebecca Jones has certainly played, I think, an outsized role in in in, in pushing the story that Fl- Florida is, um, you know, hiding its its death data, or at least that things are far worse in Florida than the data indicate. For instance, uh, recently she had posted that New York, if you counted ex- excess deaths, had finally surpassed Florida in terms of COVID deaths. I asked CDC about it because she cited CDC, and the CDC said, "No, she's got it wrong." Number one, you can't attribute excess deaths this way. And number two, she forgot to add New York and New York City together. But her response to this was then to call me a misogynist and a conspiracy theorist. And, you know, <laughs> Rebecca Jones is a person that, uh, it, you know, in light of the misogyny comment, uh, is a person who, who not only weaponizes uh, her gender and weaponizes information, um, and inaccurately so, were she a male, like, she would not have gotten time of day I believe, from members of the news media. I mean, let me ask you, if, if there were a, a male professor who had sex with a student and then was credibly accused by that student when the relationship resulting in a pregnancy broke off, 
and sent that student or former students, family members and boss, uh, what that student calls revenge porn. Like that's hard for me to see that being taken credibly. Uh, yet that that's the case. That's kind of been just kind of ignored. Um, so, you know, when you look at the totality of her record, the things she said, the, the, the changing in her story over time, I'm very often hesitant to criticize, criticize a lot of my colleagues in the Florida-based news media, but there have been, there has been a desire by some, and I don't want to name any names, to understandably further the narrative that DeSantis has been non-transparent and has hidden data, and he has, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. But they've decided to use a person with major credibility problems as a primary source or as a source in that. And, and you know, that's dangerous for our credibility as the news media. Like, um, yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of like, you know, the human events wrote kind of a takedown piece about Jones, but um, I'm, I'm just trying to think of, of a case where you've had a, a thrice arrested, thrice fired person uh, whose claims have not been matched by the data spreading conspiracy theories, who's given lots of time on CNN and MSNBC. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm watching it and kind of scratching my head and then my Twitter feed lights up with these conspiracy theories all the time. As I said, I check them with CDC. Like, I mean, are more people probably dying from COVID than the COVID death numbers in Florida show? Yes. And it's probably happening everywhere. Yeah. Because it's a novel coronavirus. There are a lot of deaths and it's very difficult to do. But, you know, to kind of, have a, a um, to build a political brand on on this idea that all of these deaths are sort of being hidden and you're being lied to and uh, and the like, you know, the, a lot of those specific claims haven't been borne out by the facts. And, and again, I refer to you, like, well, what what are we supposed to do? Like, imagine that there's some massive conspiracy between doctors and hospitals and uh, local health departments. Uh, and the like to kind of cook these numbers. It just doesn't get head out. Well, and and I would say the onus is is kind of on that information coming out, considering we're already seeing it in, in New York, right? Uh, and that I think is the other counterweight to all this is that I don't know if DeSantis rises as fast as he does if Cuomo is not facing a major scandal and Gavin Newsom is not you know, likely going to face a recall attempt. And meanwhile, the guy that everybody made fun of is as uh, as has, has a, a lower death rate than uh, than many other states, right? Well, that just kind of gets back to this this idea that um, this irony that DeSantis's popularity uh, has been fueled by his dysfunctional relationship with the news media. Yeah, uh, Mark Caputo, thank you so much uh, for coming on and talking about this. Uh, uh, please, everybody, go ahead and uh, read his work in Politico. This was a great, great, great read. Uh, have a great day, man. Thank you. And that will wrap it up for us today. A reminder that another free way you can help this show is by heading on over to Twitter where you can thank our guests, make them feel happy that they came out and uh, uh, talked to us here today. Our guest was Mark Caputo. He is M-A-R-C-A Caputo, C-A-P-U-T-O. That is Mark with a C, A 
in uh, the middle of the name and Caputo, C-A-P-U-T-O. You can also support us monetarily. You can head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. We'll get to those titanic $10 tier folks in a second. You can uh, give me a one-time donation at paypal.me slash payjury, P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. You can hit me up on Venmo, Justin-Young-20. You can also send me a physical check at P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. And, of course, you can hit me up on Cash App at P. X number three, cash. If you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at px3tweets. px3live.com is our Twitch live stream. We'll be back on there this week. May or may not even be back in studio tomorrow, depending on when this COVID test comes in. Uh, Again, you can get our newsletter, a free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com or px3 newsletter all goes to the same spot and you can share this show at px3podcast.com but it is now time for our titanic ten dollar tier uh we are resetting our nickname so if you are a part of this tier uh, uh we will be sending out a new nickname spreadsheet so you can update your nicknames it's about time for that but we begin with somebody who's a, who's given name on Patreon is Snuffies off Route 44, which just delights me to no end. They join Alex, Catherine, Jason, Jay Sulu, Brian, Saverio, Jacob, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Neil, Archie, Darren, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, David, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, Chris, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, Scale, Jim, The Gen, D. Really, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I got something for the Lincoln Project. I got something for the Lincoln Project, and they're going to get it on Friday. We will also be joined by Dave Leventhal to talk about the uh, history of uh, PACs and exactly how much uh, you know they can get away with, how much money is involved these days. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show to dare talk about how three.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.